When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number 68. If you're doing a startup and you go out and raise, you say, I'm the guy. Here's my idea. I'm the guy to execute. This is my bill of goods. I'm selling it. When you go out and sell a company, you say, I'm out. I'm out. Here's the company. You can do it. It's going to transfer all to you. So the valuations are historical rather than future-based. Welcome to a real-world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. Hey there, everybody. I am Jay Scott. I'm your co-host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. And across from me in a different room, but sort of across from me on the camera, is my co-host and beautiful wife, Carol Scott. How's it going today, Carol? Doing really well. And can I tell you the coolest thing? So the other day I was on Amazon. Well, let's be clear, pretty much every day I'm on Amazon, but this was the coolest thing right on their homepage. They, Amazon had a feature from some guests that we had last year. It was episode 17. Uh, Nick Hill and Alejandro, who were founders of Back to the Roots, were featured on Amazon's homepage. And it was a big feature about a small business doing good. And it was just so cool to see because I've seen them featured in the Costco magazine before. And to just see them on Amazon the other day just made me so happy and so thrilled for their success because they're great people who started an incredible company and they just keep growing and growing. So that was my cool little discovery over these past few days. And I had to share. It's a business doing good that's also doing well. So That's right. Gotta love it. <laughs> Gotta love that. That's awesome. Well, this week, we have an amazing episode for you as well. Our guest this week is a guy named Walker Dybel, and he is the author of one of my very favorite business books. I've talked about it before in this show. It's called Buy, Then Build. And this is a best-selling book that Walker released in 2018. He actually started writing it in 2013. And Forbes magazine called this one of the top seven books all entrepreneurs must read. And it really is. If you are be looking to become a business entrepreneur, if you're looking to get into business, this is absolutely a must-read. This book is used by multiple well-known universities as a textbook for their entrepreneurship through acquisition MBA courses. And it's just an amazing book. And it's kind of the textbook that I've used for my acquiring businesses. So today, Walker is here. He's talking a little bit about the book, but he's also talking to us about business acquisition. 
So he starts by telling us why we should be buying businesses as opposed to starting businesses from scratch. Because a lot of us have this dilemma. Do we buy a business? Do we start our own business? What are the pros? What are the cons? And so he walks us through that. He walks us through the process of buying a business. And then he talks to us about what we can start doing today to get prepared to buy our first or our next business. So just an amazing interview. Make sure you listen to the end where Walker tells us all about why now, right now, is such a great time to be buying a business. And then he also talks to us about the biggest mistakes that we as business buyers should avoid once we make that purchase. Again, an amazing jam-packed episode. I've wanted to have Walker on the podcast for about a year now, so I am thrilled that he was here with us today. Listen to the episode, check out his book, Buy Then Build. For more information about Walker and about the cool things that he's doing, check out our show notes at biggerpockets.com slash bizshow68. Again, that's biggerpockets.com slash bizshow68. Now, without any further ado, let's jump into our episode with Walker Dybel. Walker, thank you so much for being here today. I've got to tell you, Jay is such a mega super fan of your book, and we are so looking forward to digging in and learning from you today. So thank you so much for being here. Carol, thanks so much for having me. Jay, thanks so much for being a fan and letting Carol invite me here today. I, I'm, a, I'm a mutual fan of Bigger Pockets and so thrilled, thrilled to have this conversation. Awesome. Well, anybody that I've talked to over the past year since we started this podcast knows I've been trying to get you on the show. For those that don't know, Walker is the author of this book that I'm holding up if you're watching it. If you're not watching us, it's called Buy Then Build. I believe you wrote it in 2018. Published in 2018. Yeah. Published in 2018. Probably started in 2013. It took a while. I, I've i been there. I, I get it. This is, this is essentially, Buy Them Build is essentially the Bible for anybody that, that wants to go out and buy a business and kind of start generating income through entrepreneurship, business ownership, buying a business. So I'm really excited about this interview. But let's start with what brought you to the point of writing this book and and just give us a quick backstory. What 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 led to buy them build? Yeah, thanks. So you know, I mean, I mean, the, the first part is that you know, it's it's kind of like I always knew that I was going to be an entrepreneur, right? Whatever that looked like. I, I you know, growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, I wasn't necessarily hanging around a bunch of uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. It looked very different where where I was. But the thing is, is that I did a couple of startups and along the way, I just sort of learned that starting from scratch was sort of punishment for not understanding statistics, right? It's, it's just the odds that you're going to make it are really against you. Um, and we all feel a little bit like Han Solo. Maybe Carol, there's some kind of analogous female character, but, but you know, it's sort of like, don't tell me the odds, you know, I'm just going to go out and do it. But the thing is, is that even if you're successful, so few entrepreneurs actually ever hit a significant scale or actually have the impact that they set out to achieve. So even after making it, right, there, there's kind of this, this other hurdle of, you know, is it what I was trying to do? In 2002 to 2004, I was getting my MBA at Washington University in St. Louis here. And I kind of had this realization. And I think it's something that most MBAs have before, okay? But that's that, you know, I knew I wanted to go into business. I knew that I was interested in entrepreneurship. But what I found was it's kind of like the MBA was actually created for you know, middle management at large organizations. Okay? And as entrepreneurship became a part of the curriculum, sort of like turn of the millennium, okay, 
you know, it was really sort of a Silicon Valley swinging for the fences kind of flavor that started, right? You know, quite literally Facebook, right? Coming out of Harvard. I mean, these are the kinds of influences that had on the MBA curriculum. And I sort of knew that I might have some kind of shot at one of these, you know, big impact, billion dollar idea kind of things. But, you know, the odds of me wanting to run a small business was something that was much more approachable, something that was much more likely should I not succeed. And sure enough, after our first, my first startup failed in 2004, I went out and kind of tried to buy an existing company. I knew there was some way to do it. I didn't know how. I went out and started looking for resources and I just came up empty-handed. There really wasn't anything out there. And so in 2004, I got the idea to write the book. And it wasn't until 2013 or 14 that I actually started writing it after a number of events occurred. Got it. Okay, great. So tell us a little bit more in the book that you did finally publish in 2018 after you wrote it for that five years after that amazing experience. You recommend not starting a business from scratch, but instead proceeding to buy one. So why is that? Why why should we be looking down that avenue rather than starting from the beginning? Yeah, Carol, thanks so much. So I, I touched on it just a little bit, right? We all sort of know like the saying, like 10% of startups kind of make it, right? Well, the thing is, is that 4% of companies in the United States exceed a million dollars in annual revenue. That means 96% of the startups that actually succeed don't ever actually achieve a million dollars in annual revenue, which for, again, for me coming out of MBA school, like a million dollars in revenue was so, was, too, was so small that I was ignoring it, right? The first company I acquired was doing 8 million in revenue, just to, just to start to put it in perspective. I started actually lowering my standards once I, once I started understanding the, the, the stats and like how meaningful it was to get to a million in revenue and how many people don't achieve that, right? And so the analogy here, I, I call it entremetrics, right? Like the analogy is sabermetrics. I don't know if you know this in, in baseball, it was the way that the, the Boston Red Sox won the Super Bowl. Like it was the Brad Pitt movie, the money ball, right? The concept was we can't compete we don't have enough money to compete with getting these sluggers, these people coming in, swinging for the fences, hitting home runs all the time. So what we need to do is sort of like get down and dirty, get smart. What are the metrics that actually win the game? And getting on, on base was the metric that they started to recruit the baseball players, right? And so for entrepreneurs, what I challenge you to do is start by getting on base. Start by getting existing revenue. Start by getting existing infrastructure. Start by getting existing profits. And... When we go out and we actually raise money for startups, what we do is, is we raise based on a future valuation. Okay? We say, look, we're going to go, take this money you give me. We're going to go build this amazing infrastructure, but I'm going to sell it to you today at a discount, which is how you're going to make money, Mr. and Mrs. Investor. Right? And so you get this money and you go out and try to build the infrastructure from scratch. Okay? We've covered the odds of that actually happening are not great. But then if you go out and say, look, I'm going to buy this existing infrastructure, then you're buying it based on historical, a historical valuation, okay? And an existing business because the owner of that business is leaving, right? If you're doing a startup and you go out and raise, you say, I'm the guy. Here's my idea. I'm the guy to execute. This is my bill of goods. I'm selling it, right? When you go out and sell a company, you say, I'm out. I'm out. Here's the company. You can do it. It's going to transfer all to use. It's historical. So the valuations are historical rather than future-based. It's based on existing cash flow and because it is a smaller company, we're not paying these PE ratios out in the publicly traded markets, right? So you're talking about, you know, let's just say on average, like a 3x, okay? You know, it's a, a 2 to 4x, you know, 3 to 5x, somewhere in there, depending on the size you're looking at. And when you say 2x or 3x or 5x, 
you're talking about two or three or five times earnings, net income. What number, two or three or five times, what number are we looking at there? Yeah. So the number there is it, it's, um, it's going to be either adjusted EBITDA or seller discretionary earnings. Let's not run down the rabbit hole of definitions. Let, let's just say it like this. This box that is this company, okay, generates a certain amount of discretionary earnings for the owner, okay? That discretionary earnings is the number we're trying to define, right? What is the amount of money that the owner of the box gets? And then you take that and you multiply it somewhere between two and five, depending on a lot of different things. And that translates very much to, in this example of 3X, three years of earnings, right? Got it. Okay. So that makes sense. So basically it's to, to use a very simple term that doesn't have a ton of meaning, profit. So we're looking at two, three, five times profit, which means if we buy a business that's generating, if we pay three times a year's profit, net income to buy a business, in theory, that business pays us back in three years. So let's say we spend, we buy a business that's generating $100,000 in owner profit every year. We pay $300,000 for that. In theory, if we keep that business running exactly the way it's been running historically, we should get our money back in three years. And I know we have a lot of real estate investors on the show. And when we talk about this from a real estate perspective, we often talk about a term called capitalization rate. And that's if you pay cash for something, essentially how many, how, what, what's the percentage you're going to return on it every year. This is about a 33% in, in, in those terms. This is about a 33% capitalization rate where in real estate these days, we're generally getting four, five, six, seven, maybe if you're lucky, eight or 9% capitalization rate. So just from a, an opportunity standpoint, buying a business sounds like a tremendous opportunity. You get your money back in three years. <laughs> you're thinking for, for, right. the, for those no, no. that aren't watching he, he's he's thinking about the nice way of telling me i'm wrong no 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 yes. that's exactly that's exactly right and, and, and the thing is is um that, that's exactly where i was going with that was cap rate and I, I think that the other thing that acquisition entrepreneurship does is it actually brings the equity build-up economics of real estate to entrepreneurship right so when you go and buy a building you put whatever 20 percent down 80 percent in debt right and then the, the people that are there renting from you, are it's their dollars that actually build up your equity of that other 80%. So it brings that equity build up, okay? Then you get the, this insane cap rate, okay? But there's one other element that in, in the comparison to real estate that I think is, is critical, and that's the appreciation rate. So in real estate, appreciation is... You guys would know better than me. What, what is it? What's average appreciation? Like 2 3% a year? It's about inflation. So somewhere in the two to three percent of years is okay. about right. Oh in 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 general across all markets. Yeah. So I think that the interesting opportunity here is that you know a lot of people approach real estate as a passive income, passive investment. Most people that I know that get into real estate end up saying, like, yeah, that passive bit, it's not that passive. Like once you turn it into your business, like it's very active, right? So if you think of acquisition entrepreneurship as just owning the fact that it's active. Okay, and you're saying, I'm going to go in and I'm going to do this. Okay, the thing is, is that what you have control over is the appreciation rate. So, if you can grow that business, say 10% a year, your cap rate, as you're saying, starts to go up over time because you're, you're pushing that the value of the business north as the revenue is going north and as you're growing the earnings as well. I love that. I love that. And I assume, very much like real estate, the two ways you increase your valuation are you increase the revenue, the money that's coming in, and you decrease your expenses by improving management and, and running things more efficiently, right? 
Yes, that is an industry is called private equity, what you just described. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So kind of along that same vein, Walker, I'm curious to know for our listeners, should we be, if we decide to go down this path of buying rather than building from the get-go, should we be looking right off the bat for businesses that are stable? Or is it a better idea to look for a business that requires some, in lack of a better term, a term renovation or rehab, some massive improvements to make those profits and turn it into what it could potentially be? I, I love that. Let me just say that that the book is called Buy Then Build. And, and the reason that's important is because I don't want people to, to hear buy then chill. Right. And so the thing is, 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 you know, I always say start from scratch rather than build. You know, a lot of people will say buy versus build. And it's like, no, you buy it and then you build as opposed to building from zero. Right. And so it's, it's semantics. I understand, but it's also really important to understand that the build part is critical because it looks at what it is that you bring to the table. And so the thing is, is I think that a lot of potential buyers will actually start going out and looking at businesses like, like a menu. And they're going to, I'm going to order the chicken or I'm a vegetarian. I'm going to order this or whatever, the pasta, whatever it is you're going to eat. And you're sort of looking at sort of like what's on the menu and you're kind of going, well, what's, you know, what's a good business, right? And there's, look, there's attributes, there's all of these things. But the most important thing, which is what most people don't even really think about is what is it that you bring to the table? You are going to be the CEO of this company on day one after you buy it, right? So the thing is, is like once you're the CEO, you have to figure out what is the growth opportunity that you're actually able to to capitalize on. And so when I started writing Buy Then Build, I didn't want to be the guy. I didn't want to be like, I'm the guy and here's my story. I really wanted to be like, this is happening and there's people around me that are acquiring businesses. And so I'm going to start interviewing them, right? And so I start interviewing them. And I'd be like, well, you know, what were you looking for or whatever? And they would all say the same thing. They'd say like, well, I'm just looking for the same thing everybody else is. I'm looking for... And then they would say something that was totally different from somebody else, right? Whether it was, oh, I'm just looking for a very healthy company with growing revenue year over year, or I'm looking for something that got a million dollars in earnings and it's a complete disaster, or I'm looking for a SaaS business, or I'm looking for one of these like, eternally profitable companies in, in like a decentralized marketplace that like has very low growth opportunity, but really high margin of risk, right? And all of these things I ended up putting into what I call the AE matrix, the acquisition entrepreneur matrix. And there's basically four quadrants, like any good business book, I've got a four quadrant model. And it covers all of these different things, right? It's the eternally profitable, it's the turnaround, it's the high growth, and it's the platform, okay? And the concept is in all of these, it's simply to understand what it is you're looking at after you take the time and understand what is it that you bring to the table? What are the, what are the attributes that you can use as levers to grow the business and operate the business? What do you want your daily activities to look like? right? And then you find the business, the growth opportunity that's right for you. I love that. And, and I want to dig into that more. But before, I, I do have a quick question that's a little bit more relevant. And I also want to say, by the way, you talked about the fact that you wrote this book by talking to other investors. That's one of the things I really love about this book. As you read through it, it it's not written like a lot of a lot of let's call them guru books that we we see these days where it's written from the I know everything and there's one way to do things and you have to listen to me standpoint. This book is really written from kind of a humble standpoint, kind of like there's a lot of ways to do things and here's what's worked for a lot of people, here's what's worked for me. 
And so that's just, that's one of the things I love about this book is I didn't feel like I was being talked down to. I felt like I was being educated. So thank you for that. But here's a big question. Here, shot in the arm. But let me <laughs> comment on that, which is, I, I, you know, when I wrote this book, I spent a few years writing it as we've covered. I wrote most of it between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. And so the thing is, is like, I always thought like, no, one, no one's written this book, right? No, like it's not out there. And so all of a sudden I started thinking I was a little crazy. And it was like, when I put this out there, is everyone just going to understand like all of, all of my, you know, poor logic? Because it, now it's in black and white out there. And instead it's been quite the opposite response. So thanks for saying that. Every time I hear that, it's a shot in the arm. Absolutely. So here's the question I'm getting a lot these days is, okay, we're dealing with coronavirus, COVID. A lot of businesses are struggling right now. We don't know where the economy's headed. We don't know where business as a whole is headed. Is now a good time or a bad time or a neutral time to be going out and implementing the strategy of buying a business and then improving it? Okay. I'm so glad you brought this up. I believe that there is a huge disservice going on right now. I think that a lot of people that are being introduced to the concept of acquisition entrepreneurship are sort of being told like, oh man, there are all these opportunities. COVID is like driving all these people into whatever. Well, okay. First of all, let's go back to the AE matrix. Okay. There's four different quadrants of opportunity. And all of these people are sort of saying like, oh, all these business owners, there's less than 90 days of cash in their business. They're all running out of money. There's going to be all these disasters and like all of this opportunity. Let's talk about that for a second. First of all, if, that, if that's happening, which it's not because the SBA keeps printing money and, and basically bailing out small business. So, but let's just say that they stop and, and some people end up over their skis. Well, you know, you're talking about... Number one, the biggest category of business owners are baby boomers. These are people that haven't had debt on their books in decades. Okay? I mean, these are, like everything's paid off. They're, it's basically a cash cow and they're operating their business. There's very little dire need for this kind of thing. And what I want to tell you is working as an advisor or a broker, I find that if I want to take something that's a turnaround and try to sort of take it to market, like you're going to hear crickets. Okay. So the people that are out there saying like, look, there's this, you know, buy a business with no money down, buy this sort of like disaster, whatever. Number one, they're ignoring how the private capital markets work all together. Okay. So it's bad information. Number two, you're also highlighting like the number one least attractive asset class to brand new buyers who all just want to buy retail. Right. So there's a huge disconnect between what's going on. Is it a bad or good time to buy a business? I think that yes. In other words, you know, there's sort of a confluence going on right now. And one of the things coming together is that capital has never been easier to obtain. The SBA is lending out um, up to $5 million in cash to any potential business buyer, even on a cash, cash flow-based loan. Okay? So access to capital has never been easier. And there's never been more inventory out there and sort of waiting to come on market. That being said, when I do business brokerage work, it's all in online businesses. And online businesses has been the asset class of like the last 90 days, right? So a lot of people are, they're staying at home, they're worried about getting laid off or whatever, and they're starting to get introduced to this idea. And they're starting to realize like, oh, I want that four hour work week. Maybe I could just buy something. So they go to Quiet Light Brokerage or wherever and try to, try to find a, a website for sale. And I think that's a great way to go. I said to my colleague, this is such a great time to buy a business that like there's so much money out there. Interest rates are super low. And he said, you shouldn't say that because we absolutely don't actually know that. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> I guess you know, there's validity in that because there is risk. 
when you buy a business. And so these things are, are all about timing. It's, is it right for you? Is it right for the business? I think a lot of people sort of live to that adage of you make money when you buy. You know, I think that it's almost the opposite when you're buying a business because you're looking at that growth opportunity and the cap rate, as you put it, is so high that I don't worry about paying a little bit too much. I worry, you know, I want to pay a fair price and I don't want to grossly overpay. You know what I'm saying? You know, you're talking about months usually. It's a difference of three years and two months versus three years and four months. Who cares? Okay. I don't, right? I mean, you know, if, if it's the right opportunity, it's the right time. I think that a lot of people that have had businesses that have declined in COVID are not going to be open to selling. And the reason is because they're like, listen, I've owned this business for 20 years. You know, I repeatedly sell $3 million in revenue every single year. And as of right now, my trailing 12 months is looking like 2 million. Why on earth would I sell right now? I wouldn't. There's no reason to do that. What am I going to do? Take a big seller note? Take an earn out? Uh-uh. No, I'm just going to hold on to it. I'm going to make the cash and, and go from there. One last point just to pull it around is that let's say that I'm stuck. Let's say that I'm someone that's like, oh my gosh, I'm out of money. I'm out over my skis. I've got to sell. Okay. Look at that from the buyer's perspective. What the business needs is working capital. So now I've got to buy the business and I've got to find another 90 days or six months of working capital. Like that's just cash. That's not that, that I got to come up with. That's not like a bank loan. That's not like, oh, I need six months of working capital to like work this business out of COVID. I mean, where's that come from? That, it's, it's such an unattractive deal to a buyer. And you know, I, mean, I think there's a lot of attention being given to really bad deals that aren't frequently happening. Great. That, Thanks for that clarification. That was a great answer. And, and I'm one of those people that the last few months, and honestly, I've kind of changed my tune the last month or two, seeing where things have been heading with COVID, with the stimulus money with the extension of PPP loans and, and all of that. I've kind of changed my tune the last month or two, but I'm one of the people that's been saying for the last five or six months that now may be a fantastic opportunity. And and so I appreciate you coming on here and, and challenging that and kind of like, kind of giving the the, the opposite. Yeah, I mean, it, it's driving me nuts actually. And it's, it's like, okay, give me a really big microphone. How do I really say this? <laughs> you know, one, one thing that I want to point out is like, I've got a, a railing company. I've got, a, I've got a, a couple of companies right now, but, but one of them we, we make like custom fabricated aluminum railing that's powder coated. You guys have it because you're near saltwater. No one has that in St. Louis, right? So it's everyone's got this rickety stuff, this, you know, like steel that like rusts. So it's a really premium differentiated product in this geography. So I buy the company. And what I want to say is, is, is since COVID, first of all, my online business is exploding. I'm, I'm not a lucky guy. Like, the, like I'm never on the right side of luck. And right now I'm like, oh my gosh, right? Like, so the, my e-commerce is probably up 40%, like 38%. And my offline manufacturing company, you're talking about the SBA came out and said, listen, we're going to completely forgive six months worth of payments. Okay. And we're going to completely pay all of your uh, labor for the next 90 days and we're going to pay your or 60 days I think it was and we're going to pay your rent. So actually we're sitting in a position right now where we have more cash than we've had in the last 5 years. It's a really strong time. And of course people are, you know, they're going to their lake houses, they're staying home, they're wanting to do home improvements. So revenue's up. Revenue's up, cash is up, expenses are down. I'm not selling. <laughs> in fact, maybe I should because I can get a higher price right now to one of these buyers that's learning about all the deals. And it's actually true. I mean, I've been saying for a few months now that I expect all these deals to be coming online. It, it should be easy to find businesses, all these business owners that are just desperate to get out and they're willing to hand off their businesses if you don't fire their employees or they're looking to retire. And I've been waiting. I, I follow, like network with a lot of brokers. I talk to a lot of other business owners. I look at a lot of the, the business brokerage sites. And just like you've been saying, I haven't seen the deals. If anything, 
values have been going or prices have been going up and it's really kind of been perplexing but i think you just did a great job of explaining why we're seeing what we're seeing and why it really shouldn't be that perplexing so thank you for that absolutely absolutely and i and i think there's certain there's there's also some nuanced difficulties there to evaluate for example let's take online just for a second there's a large amount of people out there believe it or not that don't buy online they just don't. Like it's a huge percentage of the population. COVID has started to change their habits. And so places like Amazon, we're building habits right now that is just going to improve that business. But if I'm selling face masks, let's pick a better example, toilet paper. If I'm selling toilet paper online, boy, I had a great March in April, right? You're not going to buy the toilet paper business, but what do you do with Amazon? I mean, it's a bad example because it's publicly traded. So imagine, a, a, I can't think of an example that's not confidential, but you know, just, t- just take a take like, you know, I, I love like skincare, for example. So, so say, say there's a skincare business. The reason I love it is because people, if they are rubbing things on their face, they, they don't want to change brands, right? So let's say they buy a new brand of, of whatever, acne cream or whatever. They're going to still buy that later. They're building the brand. And so like, how do you start to value some of these things that are getting it versus things that you're looking at going, well, COVID's external, it's short term. I don't know when it's going to end, but it will end at some point. Then we'll go back to normal. So it's, it's sort of like two separate opposite things going on right now. And it's really hard to evaluate. Yeah, I can see how I can see how that works. I'm curious though. So we talked about now as much as ever is an absolutely great time to buy for a number of reasons. The SBA well, is- Well, now may or may not be a great time to buy. Well, sure. If if it is, right? If yeah. I think it is. I mean, interest okay. rates are low. Interest rates are low, right? SBA is lending. I think that there's there's variance in the targets that you're looking at and like you, you can always make a mistake. It's more like the mistakes are just a little different right now. Yep. Does that make sense? But Absolutely. In, in terms of getting capital and buying a company, I love right now. I love it. That's awesome. So let's say I wanted to jump on that, right? And you mentioned earlier, it's our job in buying then building to determine what we can bring to the table and and what we can do to make that company grow. How do I begin to identify that and then identify potential businesses that would be a good fit for me or for our listeners? How would they, how would they go about determining what those things are that they can bring to the table and what might be a good fit for them? Yeah, it's a great question. So I've got something called the three A's, right? And it's attitude, aptitude, and action. And it's basically attitude is is really one of these things where, you know, inevitably I give a talk. And when, when I talk specifically at universities, it's it's always an elective. It's never a required course, right? And so people show up and it's like, okay, all these people came here of free will. So I'll ask, like, all right, before I start talking, like, what questions do you have? And every time someone stands up and says, How do I know if I have what it takes to really be an entrepreneur or a successful manager? And then someone else will stand up and say, you know, like, I'm closing tomorrow. How do I do like day one? And I say, okay, both of you, I'm going to talk to you after class. Like that's not what we're talking. That's like outside of the bell curve, right? Like, like we need to stay focused. But but the the point is, is just starting at the beginning and, and looking at sort of, you know, what makes a successful entrepreneur. I mean, if you look at all of the historical research and data and psychology that we have around entrepreneurs, you can kind of whittle it down into, into one sentence. And, it, and it's a intelligent individual committed toward a good opportunity. Intelligent because there's a correlation between IQ and success, just because we have more data on IQ than anything else. EQ appears to be approaching rapidly, but we just don't have the research around it yet. Committed to a good opportunity. It's not a great opportunity. It's a good opportunity. So for me, it's the level of commitment that someone is willing to make to executing on this. Okay. That's sort of step one. And then I go into, you know, you go into attributes and that's all about, you know, what are you good at? What do you enjoy doing? Right. So for example, what can we best sell with a podcast? 
that might be a great question for you guys to ask. You know, is it bigger pocket subscriptions? That's a great business. That's a really great business, right? Because it's going to be asset light. It's going to be subscription revenue. It's going to be recurring revenue. And again, I don't know. I don't know that that's what's going on here. I'm just <laughs> full disclosure. I have no idea. But the point is that you sort of ask yourself, like, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And you want to make sure that your weaknesses are sort of addressed in the target that you're looking at. I mean, are you a salesperson or good at online marketing? Are you great at operations? Are you great at financial engineering? I mean, all of these things are very different value propositions in terms of what you bring to the table. And so just identifying what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, and then sort of identify what you know, your daily activities. Like when you see yourself as CEO of this company, what are you doing? Are you in a factory with you know, 60 employees like managing team meetings? I've done that. Are you, you know, working the four-hour work week, running a, a website? I've done that too. It's usually not four hours, but it can be. But the thing is, not if you're growing is the point. But the, but the point is, is like, what are you actually doing? Are you running podcasts? You know, what, what is the thing? And so figure out how you want to spend your time, figure out where your strengths and weaknesses are, and then just make a commitment and you know, get smart, understand the business model, and just start going. Okay. So let's say I've decided now's the time. I'm excited to do it. I've kind of analyzed myself. I've, I've said, here's an industry that I want to pursue and I'm ready to go out and buy a business. What is my, I'm, not my first step, because I've already taken the first steps. What's my next step? How do I start to find businesses? What's my acquisition strategy look like? Uh, we talk a lot about business brokers. Do I need a business broker? What does a business broker do for me? How do I find one? Do I not need a business broker? Where, where do I start if today I decide I'm ready to buy a business and I've picked an industry or set of industries that, that I'm kind of ready to look for? Yep. I would even encourage you to pause and not think about industry, but rather okay. you know, segment. Like, is it product, service, online, what category? But s- stop short of industry, okay? I mean, you know, you can say, I'm looking for a distribution company and not know what industry you're in, for example. So, so let's, let's back up. So a couple of things here. So I, I think that first and foremost, um, probably the, the, the biggest website with businesses listed out there is Biz Buy Sell. Okay. It was acquired by the Wall Street Journal, I mean, like 20 years ago. All right. You know, here, here's, here's sort of the, the, the problem with these open marketplaces like that is that it's been a while since I've been like looking for a job, but like, you know, probably dating myself, but like the big ones when I was really looking were like Monster, Career Builder, you know, the, like these types of sites. I know they're different now, right? But the, the point is, is, is there was all of these jobs listed and I knew a lot of people. I don't know that I've ever met anyone that's gotten a job off of one of these job sites. Just, just as a, as a <laughs> analogy, <laughs> do you guys, let's just pause for a minute. Do you, Carol? That is so true. I'm sitting here listening to you about that. And I'm just thinking back. I'm like, you are so completely spot on. I never really took the time to think about it, but like, you're absolutely right. Hilarious. And I just remember, I just remember being in my twenties and, and it, like, you know, especially like after the tech bus, like I was just applying for everything. I mean, I, you know, it was like, I'm sending out like 14 cover letters a day and just like, whatever. And that has nothing to do with it. It's all about like, oh networking and like, you know, trying to come up with communicating what you're looking for and where you add value and all the rest of it. Right. And so the concept with these open marketplaces is that like the vast majority of companies that go up for sale don't actually end up selling. I've heard different numbers. I've heard as high as 80% of companies listed for sale don't end up selling. We talk about that, but that's a different subject. So let's not go there. The, the, The point is, is that if your company is a company that is not going to sell, it will definitely end up on one of these open marketplaces and it will stay there as inventory and hang out to die. 
So all of the businesses that will never sell are on biz buy sell. Now take another rule that we all kind of know and forgive me because I forget the exact wording. It's something like you are the average of the five people you hang out with, right? Is that right? JSU nodding, is it five? Is the number five? Yep, that's the one that everybody throws around. So so the point is, is is like, if you're the average of the five people you hang out with, right? Even Buddhists will say like, you don't actually exist. Like some (laughs) some segments of Buddhism, they, they don't think you exist. You're simply a reflection of the people around you, okay? And that's, that's, that's what makes you, right? The thing is, is that when you're on these open marketplaces and you're looking for these businesses, you're looking at, okay, you know, I'm looking at this one, I'm looking at this one, I'm looking at this one. Well, you just looked at two that are never going to sell. And so by the time you get to the third one, you're already tainted. You can't even see what it is that you're looking at. And by the way, you haven't done the three A's yet, most likely. So you don't even know what you're looking for. You don't know if you're a vegetarian. You don't know if you want the steak. You have no idea. So it becomes really overwhelming and you just like spin your wheels. So the thing is, is that for me, even, and I'm not saying that there's, that, that there's not good deals on those sites. I'm just saying they're impossible to find, even if they're right in front of you, because you haven't done the work. And the thing is, is, is there, there's sort of proprietary deal flow and then there's broker deal flow. Okay. Proprietary means like, I'm going out, I'm shaking hands, I'm meeting people for coffee, I'm doing Zoom calls, I'm making it happen, I'm posting on LinkedIn, I'm getting like, I'm just letting everyone know that I'm looking for deals. I'm doing outbound outreach, okay? And the second is, is broker outreach, all right? I am a big advocate for broker outreach. Let's, let's talk about proprietary outreach is, is another, in my opinion, a little bit of a myth. I think it gets a lot of attention because people are like, oh, they look at the downsides of brokers, which is like there's 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 more likely to be competition. There's more likely to be a broker in the middle that's being compensated on the sale price of the business. And so, you know, you're, you're not going to get that like deal, right? I'm not going to get that make money when I buy kind of thing. What I'm going to tell you is that, you know, I spent years trying to do proprietary outreach, mostly because I couldn't get enough broker deals to satisfy my demand. And what happens is number one, every entrepreneur knows the truth, which is, your business is worth 20 times earnings, okay? And it's because we bleed and we sweat and we don't see our families and we grind and you know we do all of the things. We do go through the learning curve on the electric, you know, to be like, what is this? We're the janitor, we're the CEO. We do all of the things. And then one day, the, the company is making half a million in earnings and we know it's worth 20 times that because of what we put into it. Because okay. nobody else, nobody else has put that much effort into their business as I've put into mine. That's right. And the thing is, is it is worth that, but it's not. Not on the private capital markets, right? In other words, if you're going to go out and buy a business that's doing, you know, a million in revenue, two million in revenue, that's a, that's a risky investment. I mean, in real estate, at least you have like a, a actual physical like brick building. In a business, you can literally turn the thing into thin air. Like I don't care how many physical assets are there, it, it doesn't matter. Like you can destroy a business. But it's not asymmetrical. That goes both ways. You can, you can grow it with appreciative value as well. So the thing is, is that like the sellers have this huge learning curve to go through. They're not going out learning about the private capital markets and how these firms are valued. How's a main street firm valued? How's a lower middle market firm valued? What does the market look like, right? And so the thing is, is that you know, proprietary outreach is sort of selling this idea of, I'm going to get a deal on the cheap because I'm going to be the only, the sort of bird in hand to a seller. But the seller is going to have like a nine month to 18 month education about what their business is worth. And you have everything to gain by teaching them. And so they're not really open to it and it takes them longer. So it's really hard to do proprietary outreach. Off market deals happen. I see them happen all the time. And it's part of things that happen, but it's not, 
It's not who has the deals. Now, pretend for a minute that you are a somewhat responsible CEO or somewhat responsible entrepreneur, okay? Even in the event of like death, disability, you know, whatever the, whatever the four Divorce. D's Divorce. Divorce, drug addiction, maybe. <laughs> something like that. But, you know, whatever the four D's are, even in the event of some like, like, you know, completely, you know, surprise event, okay, you're going to like call your CPA or your attorney and be like, how do I sell my business? Like, how do we do that? And then they say, oh, there's a whole industry called business brokerage or M&A advisory and or investment banking, depending on your size. And I know some of these people and here's some introductions. Okay. And then you talk to someone and that you, you get evaluation and you go to market to some extent, right? So you know, it, it, then you've got the people that know about business brokerage, and then you've got the people that built their businesses because they want to one day sell them. And then you've got the people that are just being targeted, marketed to by, by business brokers. Okay, when I, the first company I bought, I got a call every two weeks saying, hey, you want to sell your company? Like, I, I just cannot believe that there would be people out there that don't know that you can sell your company. But I guess it happens. So What's my point? My point is, is that if you want deal flow and you want it now, do broker outreach because that's where all of the people that want to sell their businesses go to. Okay. Then, and I can tell you as a broker as well, I will spend three to 18 months working with someone to sell their business just to get them mentally prepared so that when they're ready, we can then, you know, I can sell them on this is what the market is going to pay for your business. If you don't like it, fine, I can't help you. But like, this is the, the sort of range. And then we'll go through all the work. I extract all of the stuff. And then, I, you know, so I really do all of the work for those potential buyers trying to figure out where it all is. I coach the buyer through, okay, here's what's going to happen. So you've got a willing seller, you've got an expectation of value, and they're ready to go. And it's put on a plate for a buyer. And so I think it's the fastest way to get really good deal flow. Okay. So you've convinced me. I need to work through a great business broker like you to find the next business I'm going to buy. How do I do that? I'm starting out. I've never bought a business before, but I'm ready to do it. I feel like I've done my research. I've read this amazing book, and now I'm ready to start reaching out to brokers. How do I find a broker? How do I vet a broker? What do I tell the broker? How do I get that broker? Because I know in the real estate world, we just went out and we just got a $150, a $20 million, 150-unit apartment building under contract. And it's taken us a year and a half because even though I have a lot of clout in real estate, I'm in a new space. I'm in a multifamily space. And the brokers are like, you've never closed a multifamily deal. I don't care if you've done 500 single families. I don't want to be bothered with you because I don't know that you can close a deal. So if I'm going to a business broker and I'm like, I've never bought a business before, why would they talk to me? Why would they give me the time of day? What are the things I should say to them and how do I find them? It's an excellent question. So first of all, I want to say that if you're a buyer, I recommend that you don't actually hire a business broker or an M&A advisor. Okay. So before I answer your question, let's unpack that because it's, it's really worth understanding. And I think it's potentially a big difference between real estate. I, you guys would, would know better than me, or at least residential real estate, right? So, so, so the point is, is that there are buy-side advisors out there, buy-side business brokers out there. And the way that they work is it's, it's typically a retainer and then a success fee, okay? The retainer is usually something like 5000 a month. And then the success fee is some kind of you know, single layman you know, brothers formula. Okay. So in other words, if, if you go out and you do the average search that takes 18 months and then you buy something and you hired a buy side advisor to do that, 
you're going to have to pay an extra 150000 for that buy-side advisor. And that's not something that you can finance through a bank. That's just a 15% increase okay? that you have to cash out of pocket. So it's a really good service for private equity firms, maybe a family office that's okay having extra overhead just to sort of bird dog deals, right? But it's an unacceptable expense to a new acquisition entrepreneur, right? And so the, th- the concept here is that you know, brokers really represent sellers in that the sellers are the ones that hire a specific broker and say, okay, you're going to get paid a commission when we sell. So you know, let's go to market, right? So the buyer, in my mind, needs to start reaching out to brokers, okay? But not with the mission of signing up with one to help them with the mission of simply understanding, show me your menu of goods. What have you got? And most importantly, what I want you to do is make sure you get on the email list of those brokers. Because the first thing the broker does when they get a new listing is they email out the people that they know are looking. They email to people that they've been talking to recently that are kind of top of mind. And this happens usually at minimum a week before you end up on some open marketplace. And if you've got a willing buyer who's ready to go and it triggers, then you don't make it that far to begin with. The good deals, again, don't necessarily make it to those open marketplaces. So should I be looking for a broker? Like if, if I go to a broker, because I've gone to brokers before and they've said to me, well, I don't have any deals that meet your requirements that I'm representing the seller, but I have access to the open marketplaces and I can keep bringing you deals that are out there in the open marketplace and I represent you. Should I not be working with those brokers? Should I be trying to find the broker that's actually representing the sellers? How do I know if a broker is representing sellers or is just trying to middleman me? And so what do I do to vet a broker? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you kind of answered your own question there. Like, 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 basically, you want what's what the broker has and what they represent, and nothing else. I mean, that's sort of the thing, right? So, at, at, at the risk of sounding like I'm promoting something, I, I started the acquisition lab to actually address this exact issue, right? Which is sort of like you know, and th- this is simply like it's like education, coaching, tools, community, kind of a thing. And, and the whole concept is. I need a group of people to sort of go to and like talk through this deal I'm looking at. Or I need access to a business broker that I can just who's not incentivized at all, who I can just sort of chat with on, on this type of deal, right? And that's what the lab is all about. But the point here, I think, is here's I want to go back to something else because there was a, a, a big point that you said that we didn't get to. And that's, that's 90% of potential buyers never actually buy anything. Okay. And so when a business, when, when I'm working as a broker and I answer the phone and it's some kind of buyer. The thing is, is like, I know that there's a 90% chance that I'm completely wasting my time. <laughs> and that is the hurdle that we all as buyers need to get over. Okay. So get educated. There's tons of free resources on buy then build. Okay. I mean, just as an example, go to, go to bigger pockets, learn the economics of real estate. But, but the, the concept is, is get educated, get your house in order. People, some bankers have started pre-qualifying individual buyers for certain amounts. Get your resume in order, okay? I mean, get your LinkedIn update. I mean, just little things. But it's like, do a lot of sort of marketing to these brokers to sort of be like, I'm serious, I'm prepared, I'm ready to go, I know what I'm looking for, right? And so I encourage people to come up with a target statement that is that kind of is specific enough that people can think of a deal, okay? But also, you know, vague enough that they're not 
pigeonholing you. Again, just going back to when I was in my 20s looking for a job, you had to, you know, if, if someone said like, so what, you know, what are you looking for? And you're like, oh man, just any opportunity really. Like, I just want to get sharp in my teeth. It, it's, they can't think of anything. You have to say like, I'm looking for this specifically. And then they're like, oh, it's too specific. I don't know anyone that's doing that. You know, so you need to kind of, kind of pocket it in that right, right in the end zone, so to speak. I don't, I don't even like baseball. Why, what, what's with all these baseball? <laughs> How do we keep coming back there? We just do. Okay, great. So let's say we do have that whole, have our house in order, if you will, and have our target statement and all of our, you know, just all of the components ready. So when we find this, when when we approach these brokers and if the broker, I'm curious, who protects like my interests if we decide to move forward on a deal, right? So if the broker is representing the seller, for example, mm. How are we going to make sure a broker is ultimately protecting like our interests? Do we have to do that ourselves or do we have to find like a separate broker for my side of the deal? Do I need to hire an attorney or am I going to be able to just trust that seller's broker, right? Does How do I make sure that I am appropriately represented? It's a great question. I think that what's interesting about the broker business brokerage industry is number one, it's unregulated, okay? So there's no like, you know, in real estate, you need a license. In business brokerage, you need a license in most states, right? So it's unregulated. And one of the things that I found when I was trying to buy a business the first time was it's a really opaque and fragmented marketplace. And the quality of brokers is all over. Like you'll literally get people that worked on Wall Street that like went AWOL and are representing deals, right? And you get people that were like fired as used car salespeople. Like, I mean, it's just like it runs the gamut. It's a really interesting space. You know, I think, I, I guess in my experience, I'm going to hesitate just a little bit because I'm wondering if I have a good answer for you. I think that a good, it depends on the broker you're working with is where I'm going. Like, so, so some brokers are just really good and really sophisticated at what they're doing and other brokers are completely useless. It's just true. And so the thing is, is I, I don't think that adding a buy side broker necessarily helps the situation. And why am I thinking that? I guess because it starts to break down the economic incentives, but it also depends on what kind of business you're looking at. This is a complicated question. Okay. You will have an attorney. Okay. You will have an attorney. So let's okay. just anchor it in that. Okay. Great. Like, like basically the, like the, the sell side will have an attorney, the buy side will have an attorney. But what I want to be clear about is attorneys, there's good attorneys and bad attorneys, right? And a bad, like if you just look at how attorneys are incentivized, they are trying to protect their client, usually at all costs. And the best thing that you can do as an attorney is save your client from any risk exposure. The best risk eliminator is to make sure the deal doesn't go through. I'm not saying that they're evil by nature. I'm just saying that their incentive is to act as a complete undercurrent to the deal. Okay. And so the thing is, is usually you've got a buyer and a seller who are willing. Okay. If you don't trust the seller, run away as fast as possible. Okay. That's number one, okay? If you don't trust the seller, stop, okay? And, and I think that you, know, you're, you, you are working with the seller. The broker, more than anything, puts you guys in the middle, puts you guys together, and is kind of acting as coordinator. Unpack the, the economic incentive of a broker, and all you find out is that all of their incentive is, is to get a deal closed. So it's almost the opposite of the lawyer. They're, they're like the accelerator, right? And the, and the lawyer is the break, okay? And so the thing is, is it, it, it just comes down to a buyer and a seller being able to cut through all of the BS and just make sure that, that you're working together toward a common goal. And so I think, Carol, my real answer to your question is get educated on what you're doing, right? Like if you don't know what you're doing, it's going to be hard. And additional 
broker isn't going to save you. An additional lawyer is not going to save you. You just need to kind of understand how it works. Yeah, it just sounds like at that point, for, to your point, there are just too many people stirring the pot and things are getting muddy and murky with no good outcome at the end. Whereas, like you said, if you educate yourself, figure yeah. out what it is that needs to happen, how you are able to put your energy, time and resources into this business without overcomplicating, you have a much better shot at success in this buying a business. Well, and a broker wants to help you, right? A broker wants to help you get it done. I, I think the downside is that, you know, sometimes you'll talk to a broker during a deal and you just need to sort of check and make sure that you still have your watch, right? So, so you know, I mean, in other words, I mean, sometimes, you know, they'll put the pressure on in a very one-sided kind of situation. Just be aware of that. No one's going to say, you know, another bro- introducing another broker in the situation isn't going to stop that from happening. You know, but yeah. it's also worth mentioning because again, a lot of a lot of our listeners are are real estate investors looking to get into entrepreneurship, and it's definitely a little bit different in the business world. We're in the midst of uh, buying a business right now, and we probably spend more time talking to the seller than we do talking to our attorneys or our or the seller's broker. This is something different in in the real estate world. You can go through an entire transaction a month, two months, three months never, ever talk to the seller. In fact, it's generally frowned upon for the buyers and sellers to talk to each other. You do everything for the yeah. broker. In a business transaction, you may be talking, and I know in our case, we're literally talking to the, the seller more than we talk to the seller's broker or our attorney. So that's a really good point. You know, I've bought probably seven companies outright and another like maybe almost two dozen just as minority. And what I want to say is, is like on the ones that I've bought and then like managed, right? Like, Inevitably, something happens where, you know, I'm, I'm whatever, eight months in. No, let's rewind. Four months in, and we're doing something, and you know, we com- we completely blow it for a customer. Like we just completely mess something up, right? And just in my in my sort of former like ISO certification days, I sort of learned how to like go through and find the root cause. And you just sort of like start, the, you know, and you just kind of work backwards and go through the whole thing. And I'm talking to somebody and it's like, okay, then what did you do? And it's like, well, then I did this. And it's like, well, okay, hold on. <laughs> Why did you do that? Because we do it like this. And it's like, no, we've never done it like that. We do it like this. This is how we do it. And every single time this happens, I stop and think. And I'm like, why did I think we did it that way? And I realize it's because I asked the broker and not the seller. And so when the broker gave me the information, I etched it in stone in my brain and took that as information that I knew. And it was off just by a little bit, but it's wrong. So as a broker, um, I do like to put the buyer and seller together as much as possible because you need to be able to trust each other. You need to be able to converse with each other. And the buyer really needs to be able to get comfortable and sort of download the seller's brain, right? Because it's that transferability of the business that makes the whole thing mesh. And frankly, I can't say it enough. If you don't trust the seller, get out of there. I mean, that's, that's, that's a disaster. Yeah, especially since in a lot of these deals, the relationship doesn't necessarily end. The buyer and seller relationship doesn't necessarily end at the purchase. So I know for the, like I said, the deal we're doing, one, it's a seller finance deal. So we're going to be making payments to the seller. Two, it's a contractor type business. And the seller is going to be serving as our qualifier, our licensed qualifier in the business for, for a year and a half. So we're going to have that relationship for another year and a half. Even if we didn't, there's always going to be, unlike in real estate where it just transitions, a lot of times with buying a business, the seller is going to train you and and help you through taking over the books and taking over the inventory and taking over the employees. And so there could be a two-week or four-week or 10-week transition period, right? 
Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and Jay, let me let me ask you a question. You said a seller financed deal. That just means a portion of the transaction price is done through seller financing. Is that right? And I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to pry. No, that's great. Business, but I want I, I just want to communicate what that is because I think people hear that and they're like, oh my gosh, like no money down, seller finance is amazing. Is that what's going on? Or is it more like 10 to 20% would be sort of normal? So what we are doing for the deal that we negotiated, we negotiated a purchase price and there's a whole bunch of inventory. We are basically, the, the down payment is the value of all of the inventory so which is about 30% of the total purchase price and then the other 70% of the purchase price we're paying over 2 years interesting so no bank debt at all uh no bank debt at all so it's we're it's a $200,000 purchase we're putting $60,000 down which is the value of the inventory that we're buying mm-hmm. and then the mm-hmm. other 140,000 uh we're paying over 2 years Awesome. Okay, so, great. And we wanted to go, we actually were going to go the SBA route, but we started this transaction about three months ago. And SBA basically said with all the PPP loans and everything, we're about six months out. So, Okay. So you're in a segment that's sort of like under half a million dollars in transaction yeah. value, which is a totally different beast. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah it, it's a smaller one. Okay. So I, we're running a little bit long here, and I, I don't want to keep you forever. I know your time is valuable, but before we jump into the final segment of the show, the four more segment, I do have one more question. So you've gotten us excited. You've gotten me excited. I can tell Carol's excited over there, but I know our listeners who are listening to this are probably also feeling a little bit overwhelmed. You have you probably have a lot of listeners thinking, I want to go buy a business, but in addition to reading your amazing book, what Thanks. should I be doing today to kind of get prepared? What are the next five steps I should be taking to really kind of get prepared to, to go out and buy that business? I think we've kind of covered it. So I would just sort of summarize by saying like, by the way, I want to say one more thing. Like we talked about like what to do, like get your LinkedIn, get your resume, get your, you know, get your target statement. By the way, I just want to add, like if you have a strong balance sheet, if you have cash, like start with that. Don't, don't like waste an hour of time with it with a broker and then, and then make them ask the question. Like just lead with that. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's, that's what they want to know. Okay, like, can you afford to buy a business or not? And so I think the thing is, is number one, it's just understanding the business model. Okay, you got to get comfortable with the business model. You mentioned the book. There's, there's also tons of free resources on Buy Then Build. There's a new Buy Then Build Facebook group. I mean, you know, whatever. It's just get smart about the business model. Number two is put together a personal financial statement. Number three is go through attitude, aptitude, action. Number four is understand the growth opportunity that works for you. That, that's going to, you know, that identifies what you bring to the table and matches a business to you rather than the other way around. Um, and number five is, is start talking to lenders, start talking to SBA lenders. In my opinion, avoid the really big banks, go to the regional banks, see if they do any SBA pre approval. If you can get any kind of SBA pre approval letter that's really strong. And then just start your broker outreach. I mean, identify those brokers that are in your city, start sending them emails, call them up on the phone. Um, go to the different websites and start just start getting your email address on the different emails of the brokers that are out there so that you start getting your own deal flow. I think those are those are kind of the steps to get started. That's awesome. Thank you. So if it's okay with you, can we jump into the last segment of the show, the four more? Yeah, you, you didn't ask one very oh, important question. Then please, right. yes. So, so the question you didn't ask is why right now? Right, like, why is this such a good time? Right, yep. and, and and I think it's a great place to to end this section, which is again, there's a confluence, right? So number one, capital is easy to get, and there's low interest rates. Okay, so even as recently as like three years ago, you could not get a cash flow based loan 
to buy a business. All right. So capital's there. Number two is baby boomers own more companies than any generation in the history of mankind. Okay. And they are retiring at over 11,000 a day. And that's going to continue through 2028. It's estimated that there's $10 trillion in business value that needs to change hands. Okay. If you are asking yourself, why is the SBA running all of these bailouts? Understand that it is the infrastructure of the entire US economy that needs to change hands. Okay. If that fall, if, the, if we don't succeed at this transfer, we have a major national emergency. Okay. In terms of our entire economy. So there's, there's a huge tsunami of opportunity happening right now. And number three, you know, we've never been in a situation where the online business marketplace has been able to participate in, in an upside M&A cycle. In other words, all of these baby boomer businesses that have existed out there, were, they all got product market fit. They all have you know, decades of profitable revenue. And they were all created and driven for the bulk of their existence without the internet. So all of us coming up and understanding podcasting, online marketing, like new ways to reach consumers, Facebook ads, whatever it might be, okay? There's a huge opportunity to sort of like transfer the way that the, the way to attract and convert customers of, of these businesses. So the thing is, is whenever I talk to a startup entrepreneur, I just challenge them. What is the infrastructure you're trying to build? And usually they say something that's pretty fundamental. Like, um, I'm trying to build a network of buyers at hospitals just to make it up. You know, I, you know, I'm trying to get buyers at hospitals to, you know, give me feedback on this product that we're trying to build. Why don't you go buy a business that sells things to those existing people, right? You can buy a company at a, say, a 3X with a bank loan, 10% down, and get access immediately to all of those people. So it's a confluence of baby boomers retiring, proliferation of online marketing, and easy access to capital right now. Love that. That was a great way to wrap it up, truly. That it couldn't have been better. Okay, I do want to jump into the last segment of the show, what we call the four more, and that's where we ask you the same four questions that we ask all of our guests, and then we'll jump into the more part of the four more, which is where you can tell us how our listeners can connect with you and learn more about your book and your business and anything else you want to talk about. Sound good? Okay, I will take the first question. What was your very first or your very worst job? And what lessons did you take from it that you're still using today? So contrary to my usual... So, so I'm not that kid that like, you know, started the lemonade stand and mowed lawns. Like I just wasn't that kid. But at one point, I started a knife sharpening business when I was in about fourth grade. And, <laughs> and I, put, I printed out flyers on my dad's Xerox machine. And I put them in every single uh, mailbox on all of the neighboring streets. And I got one customer. And I went up and I went to collect the knives and I just went with my hands. And I, then I took all the knives like in my shirt and I took them all home and I sharpened them and I brought them back like in my shirt and handed them back to her. And so the, the big lesson I learned from that is, you know, if you're going to carry knives, don't <laughs> use your hands. <laughs> that didn't go oh where I was God. expecting it to go. That is hysterical. I am dying over here right now. If you can't tell, our boys are in third and fourth grade. And the thought of them starting a knife sharpening business is about throwing me over the edge right now. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is hysterical and awesome. P.S. Wow. One customer. One customer. Hey, and one is better than zero. 
You started something. (laughs) So funny. Okay, here's my next question. So in writing your book, you consulted with so many business owners and you, Walker, you obviously personally own several businesses. So what is the best piece of advice you have for business owners that you haven't yet mentioned today? In my opinion, start with one. I think that you get a lot of people that, you know, they hear this, they do, you know, whatever. And they're like, oh my God, I'm going to run out and I'm going to buy like six companies and do all the rest of it. Um, I've done that and it's a disaster. Like, like start with one, run it. It really, I would say for like seven years, buy it to operate, operate it for seven years before you start thinking anything else. It's okay to grow through acquisition during that time. Okay. If it picks up momentum, you know, you can, you can really accelerate quickly. But don't start buying in multiple spaces at one time. It's a disaster. So buy one, crawl, walk, run. Love that. Build up equity, but you know, make sure the cash flow is there and before you move on. Awesome. Absolutely love it. So normally question number three would be, what is your favorite business book? But we're not going to make you talk about any competitors' books. I'm going to ask you a different question, three. No, I, can I please answer the question? It's, Absolutely. It's, Only if I can ask a three, yeah. if we can do a three A and three B, because there's another question <laughs> yeah. I really want to ask now. That's great. I mean, three A is Jim Collins, good to great. It, it was actually like what I what I started to, when I started right by then build, I was like, I want to do like a Jim Collins level book, right? And then I realized you really need like 20 Stanford PhDs on staff to get really to that level. Yep. So, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't quite get it done, but that's, that's my eternal favorite. And then real quick, I just want to give a nod to Jim McKelvey wrote a book called The Innovation Stack. Uh, he's the co-founder of Square. And I sort of read it thinking like, oh, you know, this is like, okay, successful CEO writes, writes a new book or whatever. It's the polar opposite of Buy Them Build. But the thing is, is all of the fundamentals are exactly the same. We, I just go left and he goes right. And it just absolutely blew me away. It's, you know, I don't think it's a off the shelves raving bestseller. It may be. I'm not. I'm actually not sure. But the point is, is I, I I don't think it. I don't think it gets the attention it deserves. It's kind of a sleeper hit. It's awesome. Okay. Not often that we get books on here that I've never even heard of. So I just added that to my list. So you know what I mean, it's a great read. Awesome. Thank you, Jim McKelvey, the Innovation Stack. Awesome. I'm going to ask a question three B, because uh, because I'm now I'm thinking about it, so I have to ask it. What is the biggest mistake you see new business owners either looking to buy or once they buy a business, what's the biggest mistake or two that you see us make that we could avoid with your wisdom? All right. The biggest mistake that I made was one time I bought a company and I was going through acquisition. So I bought a company that immediately grew our top line by 20%. Okay. And it was a beautiful situation because they were it's going to sound brutal. It was, it really wasn't, but like all of the employees were leaving. Okay. And so all of the, and I had all of the infrastructure there. So all of the gross margin, if you know a PL, all the gross margin was just going to become my net margin. It was, it was kind of a no brainer deal. I bought it, you know, I put an LOI within 24 hours as soon as it came up. What I didn't do was put together a very clear plan on how all of the different people were going to be communicating and who was responsible for what. Okay. And so, you know, it did grow the business, but we significantly failed to extract all of the value that we thought was going to transfer. I mean, it was just, it was just kind of a total fumble, right? That's my, that's my own personal story. I mean, you know, everything was fine. I ended up selling that, you know, the combined company in October last year, which by the way, as just as a footnote, um, I was able to get a, and I don't mean this to brag, I, I just, just to show the, the, the business model, I got a 52% compounded annual growth rate off of my original investment in four and a half years. 
I mean, it's like unheard of, right? Yeah. So, so, and, and that's the second time I've done that. So it's, it's like, okay, great. Very, very, by then build textbook. So I, I think that, you know, a lot of times, like earlier I talked about, it's by then build and not, not by then chill. And I think, I think a lot of people kind of underestimate the amount of work and commitment that you need to put into the, to the first 90 days. There's, there, you got to put a plan in place and then you need to execute that plan. And I think that the first thing... Oh, oh my gosh. I totally know it. Okay, here you go. Is it. Ready? Okay. Everyone gets this wrong. The first thing you need to do, okay, is that first day, you need to start scheduling meetings, face-to-face meetings with the biggest customers. So, so everyone gets this wrong. They all focus internally and on the suppliers. Why is that? Okay, you need to go out and talk to the, to the customers and you need to get them comfortable. And you need to tell the employees first so that everyone knows what's going on. Then you need to go straight to your office you know, and spend one day, maybe two, transferring the business with the owner and immediately start calling the customers and setting up meetings for the following week and then start working internally with the, with the people. So you've got you know, that first 30 days, you really need to work on transferring the customer base over to you. That's the biggest thing I see everyone screw up. That, you know, Carol, before we got started, you said, remember that some of these things are obvious to you or not obvious to other people. That's something that was so obvious to me from the get-go that I was surprised to learn that this is actually the thing everyone gets wrong. That's great. And, and it's so obvious. Everybody's thinking about, you got to talk to your customers. You got to talk to your vendors. You got to talk to your accountant. Um, you got to transition the business. And it's so easy to forget that none of that well, it all matters, but it all pales into compar- in comparison to making sure that the transition with your customers goes yep. smoothly because the rest of it can be repaired. The, yep. not a, a non-smooth transition with customers may not be able to be. Love that answer. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So here is, we said, I guess we had 3A, 3B. So I, I guess it's technically four. And this is <laughs> a... <laughs> So many things, so many things to keep track of right now. Are you drinking? Don't tell everybody. (laughs) Hush. Okay, so this is just a fun one. And I don't care if this was in your home life, in your professional life, for one of your businesses, for your kids, however, wherever. What is something, Walker, that you have splurged on along the way that was totally worth it? When I In 2002, when I started at WashU, I bought a desk from like Pottery Barn or something like that. And not kidding, the, the, the top is right here in the corner of my office up Aww. against the wall. The first week I owned it, I tore, like it's like, you know, fabricated wood or whatever with like, I don't know what you put on top of this. Like what's the, it's like, it looks like wood, but like it's like Some fake type wood. of laminate veneer something, something. Laminate, yeah, laminate. I tore it right where the mouse goes. So like, <sighs> so like every time I moved the mouse, I would go like, you know, like, or whatever. And it was this, and we kind of scrape my third finger. And so it's one of these where last year from 2002 to last year, I lived with that thing and it's right there in my office. And I bought a live edge walnut table and I just totally like, (laughs) I mean, this thing, every morning I come in and I rub it and it's like so beautiful. It takes my breath away and it was so worth it. But it just, it reminds me that, you know, I spend my life at my desk, you know, I spend my life, I spend my life, you know, working. And the thing is, is like, I just needed to make it beautiful. And so it's, it's aesthetically pleasing. It's rich. And I feel like I put my time in. So I totally splurged on this amazing desk. 
That is a great splurge. And I wish we had a visual of that because I suspect it goes beautifully with your artwork that we were talking about earlier yeah. and your whole office decor. That's fantastic. Track it, oh, let me see. Oh, let we're, me about, see. we're about to get a visual for anybody oh, that's. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, I love it. That's gorgeous. Good splurge. See, we're, make, we're making the, uh, the, the, the listen only people jealous now. Totally, yes. It's so pretty. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, before we get into the more part, uh, we did fail to ask you uh, a question that we ask all of our guests during the, yeah. the main part. And but I, I I do want to ask now that we're, we're talking about like how much time you spend at your desk. What's next? Do you have more books coming? More businesses? What's what's next for for Walker Dybul? Yep. So I do sort of three things, right? So number one, is, in no particular order, number one, I write. Number two, I broker online deals, and number three, I run the acquisition lab. And the acquisition lab is brand new. You know, it's it's uh, we kicked it off in January. People, you know, they kept saying like, "Do you help people find and buy businesses?" And it was like, "No, I can't do that. That's nuts. I can't charge you enough for that." I told you, don't hire a buy side advisor. They're not even worth their money. I tell you what to do in the book. And, but people, they want coaching. They want education. They want you know, they want a place to go to break down. Like, no, I'm really going to buy this. Like, can we talk about it for a minute? And that's what it's for. And so the thing is, is we've run four cohorts. We've averaged from our members 4.7 out of five star reviews, which is not good enough. So I just canceled. I just turned off a new entrance for the last two months. So we've gone 60 days with all of our overhead. I'm paying out of pocket and we're completely redoing all of the curriculum. And so the concept is providing... So entrepreneurship through acquisition is the number one MBA class, number one MBA elective at every single school in which it's taught, but it's only taught at 11 schools. And buy then build is a textbook at 30% of those schools. And I'm talking it's Stanford, Harvard, University of Chicago, Northwestern. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like the best schools in the world, right? And so what I'm doing is I'm providing sort of an ETA class experience in the acquisition lab to anyone who wants to sign up, but it's vetted. It's it, If you've got money and you want to pay and come in, that doesn't mean you can get in. You have to at least have access to $100,000 and we go through you know a little screening. And so and by doing that, we work in small cohorts and we're building a really strong community of people who are working together to help each other find and buy a business. That's next. That's awesome. I love that. And everybody check out our show notes. We'll have more information about the acquisition lab and uh, where you can find out more about it. Now, let's jump into, I, I don't want to skip the more part. You've talked a little bit about uh, what you're doing and where we, we can find out more about the acquisition lab, but tell our listeners where they can connect with you, where they can buy your book where they can find out more about anything you're doing and, and learn more about you. Sure. Thanks. So, you know, you can buy my book on Amazon, really. I mean, where else would you go, right? Buythenbuild.com has tons of free resources. Let's see, Quiet Light Brokerage. So I work with, by the way, I work with Quiet Light Brokerage as a broker because after a decade of buying, you know, I, I, I used to be a stockbroker at one of the largest banking institutions in the country. And I've worked with publicly traded companies. I'm a certified M&A advisor and worked you know, with, with solidly middle market opportunity, like 50 to $100 million deals, Main Street all over. And the thing is, is I never saw from the buy side, I never saw more thoroughly put together, more intelligently constructed, and better business summaries or prospectuses than I ever saw at Quiet Light Brokerage. So I was starting to get recruited by these firms to sort of go out and, and try to help sell companies. And one, one, one broker I was, I was honored, I closed a deal and he turned and said, Hey, listen, I, I've decided you're my succession plan. Will you buy my whole brokerage? And I was like, 
So I picked up the phone. I called Mark Dallas at Quiet Light Brokerage. And I said, look, Mark, if I'm ever going to do this, I will only do it at Quiet Light Brokerage. And he was like, great, come on board. So I joined the team a few years back. And so go to quietlightbrokerage.com. We've got amazing listings if you're looking for buying an online business. And we've talked about the acquisition lab as well. So I'm, I, I just... By the way, I just started a Facebook group. I didn't know that these were as crazy awesome as, as they are. I just had no clue. It I, takes a lot of work. I just didn't know. Like We turned it on and three weeks later, we had 300 members. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. So it's a great free place to hang out. And I'm already seeing people starting... This, I mean, it's brand new, a month old. And people are already sharing deals, sharing experiences. It's... Yeah. So it's what, awesome. What's, what's the name of the Facebook group? Buy Then Build. Buy Then Build. Just mm-hmm. like the book. Excellent. Yep. Walker, this was amazing. I'm so excited that we finally got you onto the show and we appreciate you sharing amazing tips, amazing insights. And I look forward to, uh, if you don't mind, coming back in a year or two and talking more about how the uh, the acquisition lab is going and anything new that's going on in your world. Jay and Carol, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you awesome. so much. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Jay, seriously, how awesome was Walker. I love this episode. I absolutely loved how he just set us straight right in the beginning and reminded us that only 4% of companies ever even exceed a million dollars in revenue, right? I thought that was very eye-opening and what a, a great reminder of why in so many instances, it does absolutely make sense to acquire rather than start from scratch. And I love the tips that he provided about finding a broker and doing outreach to go about doing that. Yep. I, I I mean, you know, I've wanted to have him on the episode for about a year now. And so I'm so excited to have him on. And he, he really delivered. So I, I, everything from just why we should be buying a, a business right now. I mean, we all know it's a good time to be buying, but he really, he laid it out in such easy way to think about it. Capital's never been easier to obtain. There's never been more inventory. So I mean, for anybody out there that's been thinking about buying a business, getting into business entrepreneurship, now really is the best time. And just that discussion about brokers and using your own broker versus using the seller's broker. Again, as real estate investors, a lot of things are different in the business world as much as they're, they're, they're analogous, they're, they're different. And so that was just a great reminder and a great set of uh, learnings about how things work in the business world. So just great episode. And, and I was th- so thrilled to have Walker on with us. Yeah, he was super. We were expecting awesome things and he delivered. And then some, I think Walker completely blew it out of the water. It was awesome. Absolutely. Alrighty. Are we done here for this week? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Okay, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you're having an amazing week, an amazing month. Stay happy, stay healthy. And we will talk to you next week. She's Carol. I'm Jay. Now get your target statement ready to buy, then build today. Ooh, nice. Work fancy, the, work, huh? Work, work the title in the outro. I like it. You know it. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We appreciate all of you, and we hope you have a wonderful week. See you Thanks, soon. Thanks, everybody.